iRelaunch, our mission since our founding in 2007 has been to normalize the career path that includes the career break. And I remember when Vivian Rabin and I wrote back on the career track, we had a chapter at the end where we were talking about the future. And we were saying the future of this, as we would love to see it, is that, you know, someone is working, a woman is at work, and she is about to leave because she's having a baby. And someone said, oh, are you taking a shorter term maternity leave and coming back in a few months? Or are you going to be out more on extended leave and then relaunch? And that would just be like a regular conversation. And so part of what we are focusing on at iRelaunch after all these years and with all the success stories and with all the employer involvement is to normalize the career path that includes the career break. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode 113. And my guest today is Carol Fishman Cohen. You know, it's tough to find talent. It's tough to find great people, right? We have a talent shortage all over America and, and actually in a lot of other countries as well. A lot of people have changed their lives because of COVID. They don't want to go back to the work they did before. And the battle for getting great people has never been tougher. One thing that I have noticed over the years, and I wrote about this in Superbosses as well, is something I call untapped talent pools. Groups of people that, for whatever reason, have maybe not been given the same opportunities as others. They've been bypassed. Sometimes it's because of outright discrimination. Other times it's because of a lack of creativity. And it just seems to me that this notion of thinking about your talent pool and where you're searching for people, searching for talent, is something we should spend maybe some more time on. It's really kind of interesting because when people come and tell me, you know, executives tell me or CEOs tell me how tough it is to find great people, the first thing I ask them is, well, where are you looking? So often they're looking at the same places they've always looked, the same schools, the same backgrounds, the same experiences, etc. And sometimes it pays to be a little bit more creative. I mean, think, for example, of, well, you know, I studied Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, kind of legendary head coach. He was one of my super bosses in that research in that book. And he became famous for many, many things, one of which is his focus on untapped talent pools. And in his case, he noticed that there were ex-NFL football players that had the aptitude and the interest to become an assistant coach, to join a coaching staff, but had never been given the chance because they happened to be African-American. And he saw that and he thought, that was crazy. That didn't make any sense. That was wrong. And he was the first NFL coach to ever develop an internship program for, again, ex NFL players, just recently retired NFL players, black NFL players that had potential, had interest to become a coach at some point in their career. And when you go and look in the NFL at all of the black head coaches today, and there are not very many of them, but if you look at them, each one of them could be traced to the Bill Walsh tree of talent. And so, you know, you see it in something as fundamental as race in the NFL, but there are lots and lots of other examples. When I talk about this with executive groups and I ask them, could you think of any untapped talent pools that you might want to look at or that you're starting to look at now? 
I hear things like returning veterans, you know, military veterans, tremendous experience, the types of things that they have to deal with, that they manage, the type of leadership skills that they have, just tremendous. And even though they might not know how to do a spreadsheet, for example, that's not that tough to learn. It's a lot tougher to have the type of leadership experiences that they have. And so that's an untapped talent pool. I've also heard of companies going specifically after formerly incarcerated people, you know, people that are just out of prison. That's a labor source that for certain types of jobs is really, really good. But one of the biggest, and you know, as I describe some of these other examples, and there are many, many others, you may very well be thinking about that. It's women, women returning to the workforce, women who decided that they wanted to be primary homemakers and moms typically for a period of time when they had kids. And now a few years down the line, it could be a few years, it could be a lot of years, they want to return to the workforce. And many of these people are really talented, have advanced degrees, they could have MBAs, they could have law degrees, they could have any type of background, and they want to get back into it. And they have all the skills in the world. So, you know, it's one thing to say companies should do this. But it's quite another to help them. Enter Carol Fishman Cohen, our guest today. She is the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch, a career re-entry consulting, training, and events company. iRelaunch has worked with over 200 clients on career re-entry programs and programming. iRelaunch produces the iRelaunch Return to Work conferences and leads a community of nearly 100,000 relaunchers. You know, people have returned to work, mostly women, that have returned to work after career breaks of one to over 20 years. The work that she has done in creating this organization and this company is really tremendous. And a whole bunch of corporate giants have launched their own return to work programs through iRelaunch and through their initiative and through their help. Companies like Johnson & Johnson, Raytheon, Apple, Merck, P&G, IBM, Ford, Cummins, lots and lots of companies. Cohen's TED Talk how to get back to work after a career break has had over three and a half million views and has been translated into 30 languages. She's the author of a Harvard Business Review magazine article, The 40-Year-Old Intern. That's a pretty good title, isn't it? The 40-Year-Old Intern and a bunch of other things she's written for HBR online and has presented actually almost a thousand times in various places. To talk about this is really her life's work. She's been featured dozens of times in major media and, and, you know, her own personal story as well. Her return to work at Bain Capital after 11-year career break is actually the subject of a Harvard Business School case study. So Carol Fishman Cohen, she has created something very special, very powerful. And I really enjoy talking to her about her life, about her career, and really about her life's work. So in episode number 113, Carol Fishman Cohen, this is her story. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. I'm delighted to be here with Carol Fishman-Cohen. Hi, Carol. Hi, Sid. Great to be here. Good. I'm glad you are. I've been wanting to talk to you about what you've been doing for a long time now and the impact of it. And, you know, my introduction, I shared a little bit of the big picture of what you're up to and what relaunch is. But let's kind of hear it from you. Where did you get this idea? Where did it come from in the first place? Well, I live this myself. At iRelaunch, we call people who are returning to work after taking career breaks relaunchers, and I relaunched my own career. So I was a financial analyst in the late 80s for an investment banking firm for Drexel Burnham Lambert, if anyone remembers Drexel. I was in their Boston corporate finance group, and I was on maternity leave with my first child when Drexel collapsed in February of 1990. 
And that really began my career break because I decided I wasn't going to go looking for the next big job. I had three more kids. I was home with them for 11 years. And so I was home with them between 1990 and 2001. And in 2001, I returned to work at Bain Capital in their high yield debt management group because there were ex-Drexel people there who remembered working with me a dozen years before. So it was a very different time in 2001. No one was talking about this concept of relaunching. There was no name for it. There were no programs, no media attention. I didn't know a single other person who had returned to work after taking a career break. So it was really a brand new concept. And then Harvard Business School ended up doing a case study on my relaunch, and I got a book contract along with Vivian Steer-Raven to co-author a book called Back on the Career Track about the whole concept, and that came out in 2007, and that was the same year that we co-founded iRelaunch. So I've lived it, I've written about it, I've been completely immersed in this world for over two decades now. Right. And so you got the job at Bain Capital because of your personal network, which, of course, is still a gigantic thing and it hasn't gone away. But relaunch sounds like taking a much more strategic perspective on it as opposed to hoping or depending on that network. And we'll get into that. But I'm curious about just because you lived it doesn't mean you're going to create this. Do you remember when you got the idea to say, this is actually, you know, this is more than me. There are a lot of people and there's a business opportunity and an opportunity to help a lot of people. Do you remember when that thought came to you or did it kind of build over time or what? Well, I'd love to say that there was a grand strategic plan right from the beginning, but that was not the case. Vivian and I got this book contract. They had an auction for our book. We got an advance to write it. Uh, it was for a major New York publishing house. And we were doing research for the book between 2004 and 2006. At the time, we were focusing on women who take career breaks for childcare reasons or stay-at-home moms. So we interviewed over 100 stay-at-home moms who had returned successfully. We were talking to academics and work-life experts and recruiters and employers. And during that time, the first return to work programs were starting to be conceptualized. And Lehman Brothers launched one called Encore around that time. UBS launched Career Comeback, which went dormant for a number of years, and then it got revived. And Tuck was working on a program called Back to Business with funding from City. And we were involved in the Tuck slash City programs and the Lehman program. And that really started when we were interviewing people involved with those programs for our book, but it evolved quite quickly to them asking us to present in the programs, to do focus groups, to screen candidates, and we didn't even have a company yet. So mm -hmm. that was really the origin of iRelaunch. We thought, wow, we're at the beginning of something here, and there's a lot of activity, and we're getting unsolicited inbound requests to engage with these companies, and that was really the impetus for starting iRelaunch. Yeah, and is it almost all women that we're talking about, or is it 10% men, or what's the balance? So it's an evolving number, and I'm really glad you asked about it because the best statistics we have are the statistics we take from the people who attend our iRelaunch Return to Work conference, which we are about to run our 30th one. And so we've, wow. we've run 29 of them since 2008, so we have a lot of data. And very consistently for years, we had 7% men. And then this past May, and now our conferences are virtual, we had over a thousand people at our conference and we had 14% men. So essentially there's been a doubling anecdotally from our own experience, but we are surveying 
thousands of people. So I think it's meaningful. And of course, that relates to two things. One, the COVID impact and more men electing or having to withdraw from the labor force for reasons that don't have to do with their work performance, probably family related. And also it just being more generally accepted for men to be the lead parent or the stay-at-home dad than it used to be. Yeah. So you mentioned COVID and the pandemic, and obviously it's had a gigantic impact everywhere in every sector. How has it affected not just your business, but the people that your business is designed to help? Not just kind of the fact that there are more men, but just across the board. I'm sure it's had a big impact. Right. You know, right when we started I relaunch, we realized there was a disconnect between a high caliber population who didn't lose their ability to be high performers simply because they took a career break and the perception and subsequent hiring prospects uh, for that population as seen by the employer. And that was really where we were trying to bridge the divide. And that's what's changed over time. But What happened with COVID is it brought this whole idea of career breaks to the forefront because according to the National Women's Law Center, which has done excellent work on analyzing Bureau of Labor Statistics and other data from the pandemic, at this point, it's about even, about 1.6 million women and 1.5 million men have withdrawn from the labor force at this point in the pandemic. So that doesn't mean lost jobs. That means people who are no longer counted in the unemployed because they're not looking for work right now. They're truly removed from the labor force. And having that happen on the heels of over 2.4 million women who took career breaks for childcare reasons, who Mm -hmm. took those career breaks before the pandemic, and the numbers of people who took career breaks for other reasons on top of it, all of a sudden, you know, a much bigger supply. So there was that that happened with COVID. There was the recognition, I think, even more starkly that people take these career breaks and it is for an external factor and not related to their work performance. And this is a very high caliber pool. We have a lot more data. There are more programs. They've been running longer. The success rate of programs that involve an internship-like component, which are commonly known as returnships, We now have data on how successful those programs are, and over 80% of the people who participate in those programs get hired when the program completes. So there are factors that were already in play, and now factors because there are much bigger numbers involved that were caused by COVID. That's on the supply side. On the demand side, in terms of employers offering these programs, we saw a couple of things. First of all, The programs did really move pretty seamlessly from in-person to virtual, just like all of working life did. There was a little bit of a hiccup, I'd say, between March and May of 2020 when COVID first hit. We work with the biggest employers, so they're focused on moving tens of thousands of people from a work environment to home. But after that, pretty quickly, we saw the return to work programs pick up in terms of being in a virtual format. Programs were continuing to launch. And since then, we've seen almost an urgency from companies that they want to have one of these programs in place. They want to have a formal pathway back for the people who left during COVID, in addition to those who might have taken career breaks before that. Right. One thing you said is really interesting. You use the term, I think, returnship as opposed to internship, and that there's an 80 percent I think you said success rate or something, which I take it to mean getting a full-time job offer or something equivalent to that, or at least an offer that both sides want might not necessarily be 100% full-time. But first of all, I love that idea. 
because we know from business school and we know from any school, you know, you do internships when you're in college, including undergraduate, let alone in business school or law school for that matter, when you think about it, and that that's the pathway to getting a job. So, of course, this seems as you describe it, I say, well, of course, I mean, how could we not do that? But it sounds like it's a newer idea. It's like somebody realized, or maybe you realize, this is a good pathway. It takes away some of the risk on both sides to see whether this returning person can actually do the work and really likes it and really wants to do it. Could you say a little bit more about these return ships and is it a new idea and how that really works? So the very first return ships started in 2008 with Goldman Sachs, whose program is called Return Ship. And also Sara Lee Corporation started return ships at Sara Lee in the same year, but Sara Lee then went on to be restructured and the program went away. But Goldman's program endured. And I wrote an article for a Harvard Business Review that came out in 2012 called The 40-Year-Old Intern. That was their title. I love it. But the idea was, it was really the first article to call out the emergence of the use of internship-like experiences as a successful way to engage with people who are returning after a career break. The concept was very new at the time. And it was really all about risk. It was perceived to be risky to hire people who are coming off of a career break. And And a few things have changed since then. First of all, the nature of the program itself. So these returnship programs were originally modeled after student internship programs. They were essentially a mid-career re-entry version of an entry-level internship. So people come in as a cohort and there's programming and mentorship and a lot of structure around it. But, you know, originally they were envisioned more like you come in and you work on a project for a few weeks and then you might get hired or you might not. And as we've seen these programs expand and mature, we're also seeing a change in philosophy about them. So now instead of the idea that people participate with the possibility of converting to a hire at the end, the focus is more on what we call intent to hire. So more of an expectation than a possibility that the person would be hired at the end. And that has really changed the whole way that people are recruited and hired for these programs because they are recruited and hired now more with the idea that they're going to come onto the teams and get hired, you know, after the program ends. So you can only imagine the difference in approach and thinking for recruiters and managers and teams when they're integrating someone who they're anticipating is going to be there for the long term, as opposed to being dropped in, you know, for a few weeks, almost like a contractor. So that's a huge difference. And then the other piece has to do with this risk piece. You know, we always perceived that it was not that risky to hire people coming off a career break. And indeed, instead, it was giving employers access to a hidden talent pool. And over time, we've seen that the model has proven to be successful. So yes, that number was over 80% of people who get hired after they complete a returnship program. We work with the Society of Women Engineers on an initiative called the STEM Reentry Task Force. And we've had 34 companies involved with that since 2015. 25 have launched programs. Most of them are a returnship model. And we've had over 700 people go through company programs started in the task force. And we have access to a lot of data. So the actual number from task force companies that we can study closely is 84%. So that's a more specific conversion percentage. And so actually, when you do these studies, what are you able to find out? Are you able to demonstrate to prospective companies thinking about creating their own relaunch program, for example, that the success rate 
or the tenure of these rehires is actually as good as or better than other hires. Do you look at things like that? And what are some of the metrics that Mm -hmm. you look at? So the key metric that's been in place for a long time is the conversion rate. And, you know, now, though, some of the earliest programs have been around long enough that you could measure retention. And what do the retention rates look like? So we've found this data to be more elusive in terms of companies releasing it, in part because when we're asking for retention data, it's not just for the program itself, but we have to understand what is the retention data compared to average retention yeah, of all exactly. employees or lateral hires? And so we don't have access to the breadth of data that we need to fully analyze this. And also, you know, there are only a few programs that have been around long enough that we would have meaningful retention data. So we're at the beginning of that. We do get approached by PhD candidates on a regular basis. And I keep arguing for someone to do a longevity study on this very topic. So hopefully Hopefully it will happen soon. That's great. And so if I'm a senior executive in a company that's doing this, I would definitely have my own internal metrics that would demonstrate that it works or it doesn't or what could be done to make it better or for our particular culture. So I'm never surprised anymore about what companies do or don't do. But this is the type of thing you would think would be almost a no brainer for them to you know keeping track of. Right. Yeah. And also look at the evidence in terms of how many more companies are running these programs. About 40% of the Fortune 50 are running their own in-house return to work programs. Now, less than 10% of the Fortune 500, there's definitely a skewing toward the large mm-hmm. companies are the most active running these programs. And it makes sense. You know, they're the companies hiring the most people. And that number doesn't even include private companies that have programs like Vanguard or, you know, the Fortune 50 doesn't include companies that are based outside the United States, like Credit Suisse or TD Bank, they have programs or public sector. And public sector is its own really exciting topic because really what drove the wave of expansion of companies offering or employers offering return to work programs, it was first Wall Street and financial services. Then it was a wave of companies that were tech related, either legacy tech, Silicon Valley companies, or companies that had tech at their core, but could have been in defense or industrial equipment or, you know, some other sector like that. And now as we speak, we are seeing the beginning of return to work and returnship programs being launched in the public sector. In fact, just two weeks ago, the state of Utah was the first state to launch a returnship program. We've been working with them. It just started a couple of weeks ago. We did an orientation with that first inaugural cohort. The lieutenant governor of the state of Utah is a relauncher herself. She took a 13-year career break. The head of commerce in the state also took a 12-year career break. So some very senior role models there. And the lieutenant governor was really behind that. But they're leaders. And we're expecting to see a lot more activity in the public sector at the federal, state, and local levels going mm-hmm. forward. So there's a tremendous uptake to this idea. But not everyone, obviously. It sounds so logical, so intuitive, yet I think over the years you've heard all kinds of reasons why. It sounds good for you or for them, but not for us. And I'm wondering, what do people tell you that you've heard over the years to say, this is not the right idea for us? And they mean it. Somehow that makes sense to them, even though the evidence seems to say quite the opposite. You know, I will say that companies that we've had that conversation with years before have come back and now... Yes, <laughs> you know, there's, and now still, yeah, the there's still plenty that are saying no or not even thinking about it. It's not even on their radar. 
Yeah. I just want to understand why that would be when something is this yeah. logical. Yeah. So some companies feel like they don't have the size. They're not big enough to justify an entire in-house onboarding program for this population. I would argue that any company that has a summer internship program in-house for their college students or college interns mm-hmm. with some volume to it would want to be thinking about this. We're seeing a change now because of labor markets tightening. So not only are we seeing more companies look at offering these programs, but we're actually seeing a broadening of the eligibility guidelines for them and a lowering of the minimum number of years of career break to be eligible. So, you know, there are companies that might think or employers that might think, I don't know if we can convince our managers because managers are key here. Managers have to be open to allocating some of their open headcount to the program. So that means that if they have openings that are under their purview and they assign a couple of them to the return to work program, they're taking them out of circulation for Mm -hmm. people who would be applying who don't have career breaks. So there are some managers that aren't ready to do that yet, or they want to see how it works for other people. And then I'll tell you if I'm going to be Mm -hmm. involved too. So I would say that that is probably a reason that a particular employer might not engage with a program like this. And also if they feel that it's not going to scale the way they need it to in order to be meaningful. Yeah. One thing I would think of that would be a concern, and I want to toss it around a little bit with you, is if someone's out of the workforce for 6, 8, 10, 12 years, the world changes every day, every month. And technology, I mean, there's nothing similar. It seems like, I don't know, was there an iPhone 12 years ago? Maybe. But it seems like everything is different. And so there's a ton of catch up required. And so if you're out of that and you're doing something else, you just can't possibly be as current. And so your learning curve is really, really steep, let alone the psychological or social one that we'll talk about later, but from a more personal point of view, but from a professional point of view. I mean, that sounds logical to me. It sounds possible. I mean, I have a good counter argument to that as well, but I'm curious, you must hear that and what you think about that. Yeah, that is the number one concern of employers and managers is technological obsolescence. And what does it mean? We say that it's a temporary condition. So what we've seen are when people are ready to relaunch their careers, there are a few different things that they do. One of them is going to be, and it depends on their field and how long their career break is, but if it is a technical field and they've been out for a long period of time, they are going to start reskilling or upskilling on their own. And something that's been a real game changer that used to not be available are high quality courses and credentialing programs. And some of them are free. They're all online now. Many of them are free. And employers will value someone taking an edX or a Coursera course if they finish it. And also, if people are technical, it could be like you're an electrical engineer and you've been out for 10 years and you're taking the MIT edX course in Python to retrain as a data scientist. And also, maybe you're learning some other programming languages. There's something called a GitHub portfolio that technical people create now, and they put all their technical projects in there, and that is linked to their resume. So these programs are competitive. When employers set them up, they're competitive and hundreds or thousands of people could apply. And the people who rise to the top are the ones who are already taking that first step to upskill and reskill, not only signaling that they're updating their skill set, but their seriousness about getting ready to return. And employers will say, we're also looking for the fearless learner. 
So it's like, we're not so worried that they know every last new development that's going on the field, but we want to know how they approach it when they don't know. And some of the return to work programs that are more technically focused will include certain types of proprietary technical training. Maybe the group goes through that, not just online, but there are some extra coaches available or extra resources. So this is very much recognized. We say it's a temporary condition and we have hundreds of success stories, especially we like to put out success stories of technical relaunchers who return after very long career breaks. So employers can see there's not a direct correlation between length of career break and success in the role. Yeah. And so part of the story here is that these relaunchers are really working at it. They're not just showing up with their world-class resume, dusting it off and saying, look what I did 10 years ago. They're working at it. And that's going to demonstrate a tremendous seriousness of commitment and will be good. I also think if you've been in a job for a long time, you don't upskill nearly as quickly because you're too busy fighting every fire. And I'm even going to say there's often a psychological barrier to doing so because you studied, maybe you went to MIT and you got your degree and you're really smart and now you got a bigger job and it's hard to unlearn things. In some ways, you could argue that someone that has just been away for, I'll just say, 10 years, they have less to unlearn. <laughs> they just have to learn a relearn. They just got to be smart enough and dedicated enough to do that. But for people that are in jobs now, given the changes that are going on, there are things you have to unlearn. Unlearning is one of the most difficult things to do for any individual. It's just really, really challenging. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, we have seen situations where I remember a relauncher who went back into like a bond portfolio management role. And the person who interviewed her said, you know more about the bond markets and <laughs> trends in the bond markets than some of the people who are working for me right now. And for example, we have people relaunching every field. So our doctors who are relaunching said, you know, I finally had time to read all those medical articles and the journals that I never had time to read when I was practicing. And one of the things that we tell people that's so important is you have to become a subject matter expert all over again. And that means you really have to understand all the controversies in your field and what the experts are saying and the new products and the new acronyms and why we're not using the old products anymore. And sometimes that involves sitting down with old colleagues and just grilling them. That's what I did when I was getting ready to go back. I sat down with my old colleagues and I'm like, explain these new financial products to me. What do they mean? How do they work? Why aren't we doing the old ones anymore? You know, why are we looking at this differently? And so there is quite an intensive self-study piece to relaunching. And the more of a subject matter expert that you can become, the more confident you're going to be. And the more interesting conversations you're going to have with people in your field who will then focus more on the substance of what you're talking about, as opposed to how old you are or how many years you had out of the workforce. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk a little bit about some of the policy implications of this as well, which I'm wondering about. And so I'm thinking about, for example, women that want to have a family, want to have children, want to bring up their children by being stay-at-home moms for a period of time, which you've done and millions of other women have done. And many women thinking about whether they can even do such a thing if they're also extremely career-oriented and moving up quickly. And let's also throw in the average age of an MBA student, if we want to just take that population, when they graduate is probably 29 now, 
and that's a prime childbearing age, and that door does not stay open forever. And I know from personal experience talking to people, there are a lot of women that have made a choice. And it's a choice that maybe when they were younger, they didn't want to make or didn't think about it, but their choice is their career. And that's fine if that's your choice. And a lot of people do that. But if that's your compromise, it's less fine. And from a policy point of view, it doesn't seem to be a good thing for society when we push people into that situation or they feel that they've got to do that. Then we have this opportunity or this concept of a relaunch that means you could actually do both of these things. You can still have that high-powered career and that accomplish things and accomplish things in a professional sense and still have kids. You know, I'm not even sure what my question is here, other than there seem to be important policy issues, societal issues here that I'm trying to grapple with. And I just, what do you think about that? Yeah, so at iRelaunch, our mission since our founding in 2007 has been to normalize the career path that includes the career break. And I remember when Vivian Rabin and I wrote back on the career track, we had a chapter at the end where we were talking about the future. And we had, I think, turned this in at the end of 2005. And we were saying the future of this, as we would love to see it, is that, you know, someone is working, a woman is at work, and she is about to leave because she's having a baby. And someone said, oh, are you taking a shorter term maternity leave and coming back in a few months? Or are you going to be out more on extended leave and then relaunch? And that would just be like a regular conversation. And so part of what we are focusing on at iRelaunch after all these years and with all the success stories and with all the employer involvement is to normalize the career path that includes the career break. And there have been some very important milestones. Think about this one first. So remember, the career break used to be the reason to toss the resume. As soon as a recruiter or some sort of applicant tracking system would detect there was a career break, resume got tossed. Now, with these return to work programs, you have to have a career break in order to apply for and participate in these programs. So That's a huge milestone. It's a complete reframing of the career break now that it's an eligibility factor for the programs. The other thing that we've seen, and we look at this in terms of, are we witnessing an institutional shift toward this normalizing of career breaks? So the reframing of career breaks for eligibility is number one. Number two just happened in March of this year when LinkedIn decided to build into its pre-populated drop-down menus personal leave designations. So stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, stay-at-home parent. And that to us had an outsized significance because LinkedIn, the arbiter of career pathing and career profiling, was essentially validating the personal leave designation as part of profile building as something that was more normal and acceptable. And so we thought that was a really big deal. And in fact, we even talked to employers that run return to work programs and say, you know, the more people that put that designation on their LinkedIn profile, the better it is for employers running programs because you'd actually do a keyword search sort Mm -hmm. and identify more people on career break who designate that. And then I actually wrote an article in Harvard Business Review about these three stages of this institutional shift. And what I say about the third step hasn't happened yet. That's going to be when recruiting platforms, applicant tracking systems, anywhere where you can post a job or keep track of people in a job once they're inside a company, have on their pre-populated drop-down menus a category for return to work program. So right now you have to fit it into like internship or contract or something that isn't quite perfect 
perfect, but we want them to be ubiquitous enough that it has to have its own category. So Carol, you have a model of a return to work after a significant period of time. What about the multiple returning to work over a lifetime of a career where maternity leave, well, actually in many countries, you get a mat leave, as they call it in Canada, of a year, and you're guaranteed getting an equivalent job if not your own job, when you come back. And that's the norm in most of Western Europe as well. America, of course, is far, far behind any way of thinking about this for all sorts of reasons. And I have nieces and nephews that are in their 30s, and that's what's going on. And they've had a couple of kids, and they go back to work, and it's fantastic. They don't feel like they're falling behind. They feel like they're still active. And in their case, their choices are to spend a year or two with their newborn and then balance childcare and work. We don't really have that. I think you have to drop out of the workforce. And I don't even know if any company in the whole country would give you a year. I think some companies are more and more, I don't want to call it generous because I don't want to reward six weeks is call that generous. But you know what I mean? You mean six months. Six months is good. 12 months is better. But anyways, so what about this idea of a career, which by the way, could easily track the way people shift careers anyways. All that data has been out there for a long time about how we're going to be doing different things and different jobs and different responsibilities along the way. But what about this idea of having multiple career breaks, whether it's, I mean, it could be two, could be four, could be five, might not even track the birth of a child. It could be an extended sabbatical, which has a very, very different connotation, I understand. But is that something you're seeing? Is that something you're thinking might become a trend that you'd want to be involved with? Or what's your take on kind of the multiple return to work story? We're not seeing it. I mean, we have seen some instances where people have taken two career breaks because they had to move their family across the country. Sometimes we see a childcare career break that's then prolonged by an elder care issue, or maybe there's a childcare career break and then later there's an elder care career break. So we've seen some of that really caregiving related. Mm -hmm. Now, Manpower Group did an interesting study. It was now about five years ago on millennials. And Mm -hmm. they were asking millennials about anticipating future career breaks. Now, they defined career break as four weeks or more. Okay. (laughs) And so when they defined it that way, 84% of millennials anticipated that they would have some sort of career break in the future. So, of course, that didn't meet our definition. So we looked further into their data and they actually had it broken down. And some of it was an extended honeymoon or, you know, something that you would do for three or four or five weeks. But then they had categories like support my spouse or partner in their job, caregiving, categories that pointed to a longer career break. And we saw calculating that that over 50 percent of the men and over 75 percent of the women were anticipating a future career break for one of those reasons, which pointed to a more extended leave. So we think, you know, career breaks, I don't know about multiple career breaks or one person taking several during their lifetime, but we are seeing the idea that more and more people are anticipating a future career break, the younger generations. So career breaks are not going away. And that's another reason why it's Mm -hmm. really important for employers to think about, do they want to have a formal program to bring people back? Because when they establish one of these programs, they're sending a signal to everyone in their company. They're sending the signal to their own alumni who might have left, who are high performers, who they can bring back through these programs, to their employees who are in like later life stages, who might have a spouse or partner or a friend who is on career break and interested in coming back. And then you have the younger generations, the people earlier in their careers who are looking to the future. And they're thinking, wow, my company really gets it. 
They know that people go through life stages, and sometimes that involves a career break. And if I decide to take one, I know there's a formal pathway back here. That makes me proud of my company, and I'm really excited to work for a company that thinks that way and has that kind of program. So that's what we're seeing. It's funny that manpower study that defined it in terms of four weeks. I mean, in Europe, that's called, you know, barely a vacation. Right. And in America, this is a career break. I mean, it's sadly funny is kind of how I might describe it. <laughs> when people go back to work, I'm thinking they are so motivated, so excited. Almost like, you know, when you're starting your career, you know you need to establish yourself. You're willing to do whatever it takes, just about. And so you're nodding your head. People can't see that. But that's what you see, right? That's the mindset of the returnees. Yeah. So let's talk about the attributes, because this enthusiasm, the excitement about returning to work because we haven't been working is one of the great attributes, as you're pointing out. Like, I remember when I was in year nine of my 11-year career break, of course, it was 1999. No one was talking about this. But I remember thinking I was just chomping at the bit. I was like, I got to figure out a way to get work back into my life. Now, that's the perspective of someone who didn't have financial pressure. And, you know, we never generalize from one person's experience and career breaks happen for all sorts of reasons. And returns happen sometimes because of divorce or death or disability of a spouse or partner. So I do want to acknowledge that. But even for financial reasons, the enthusiasm of relaunchers when they're back on the job, they're so excited to come into work every day. That is contagious. And the managers consistently comment on how relaunchers inject this enthusiasm into their teams. Now, beyond that, if you think about they're educated, they have great work experience, they're in a relatively stable life stage, and they are more fully formed as humans. They're more self-aware. And rather than being in a more exploratory mode, like you might be earlier in your career and as you should be, it's almost the opposite when you're coming back to work because the career break forces you to step back and reflect on whether you are on the right career path to begin with. And many of us come back to our same career or something related to it. And that's after a lot of thought and deliberation about where we can add the most value to an organization. That's a great employee to have. And then the other piece about relaunchers is that we've worked already. So we've worked on multi-generational teams and with different personalities and under work deadlines. So that does not have to be taught. And the mature perspective that relaunchers bring to their teams and to the work environment is also a great attribute. So that enthusiasm piece for sure, but there are all these other attributes of relaunchers that make them great employees. Yeah, maybe it's a bit too early to have this type of data, but are you able to see differences from millennials, for example, to baby boomers? And probably there's many fewer millennials doing the return to work yet, but maybe there's already enough to have some hypotheses on some of those differences, if any. So you're right. We don't, you know, millennials are just kind of getting into their 40s now. And so we find that now people can take career breaks during their 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. So I remember I went back to work when I was 42 and I was just over 30-ish when I left. And one of the things was that I was working for someone younger than me. Now, so you have to expect, like we tell managers, relauncher is likely to be older than you. In some companies, that's like happens all the time. Others, it's more something they have to think about. And then for the relaunchers, we have to say, you can count on the fact that you're going to be older than a lot of the people that you work with or your boss. And sometimes like you'll feel way older. Like I remember feeling like I could be the mother of all the <laughs> analysts and associates that started around the same time that I did. But, you know, you have to have a great attitude about this and a sense of humor. And you're not going to go in there and say, 
you know, when I was your age, we used to do all these calculations by hand, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But I feel like we don't have yet a lot of data about millennials because they're just starting to come back from career breaks. So I can't give you more there, but I can tell you that we're expecting them to take more career breaks going forward. Right. You talked a little bit about some of the attributes and the positive things that they bring. There's got to be some real fear and concern deep down. Can you hack it? Am I really able to do it? Is this the right thing to do? You would have had some of those thoughts yourself. And then I imagine you've seen and talked to so many people over the years through your work that there may be some patterns and maybe you could share a little bit about or even some stories of people and what it was like to go through this process. So you're hitting on something that is really universal to the relaunch experience. And we totally normalize that when we are meeting with groups of relaunchers in like a kickoff orientation session, when they're just mm -hmm. starting a program, we work to normalize fears and concerns. And it is a lot of, I hope I can do this. I hope I'm gonna remember technical and financial fundamentals. I hope everyone's gonna like me and I'm gonna get along with my team and I'm gonna be able to meet or exceed expectations. So all of that's going on, but that's really why the relaunch is different from a regular job search and it's different from a regular return to work. And that's one of the reasons we have these programs is because there is this loss of confidence that occurs when people are professionally disconnected for a long period. So we look at it in terms of society, you know, values who we are as people in terms of what we do for work. And people always ask you early on, so, you know, what kind of work do you do? And if you're home with kids or if you're on some other kind of career break, they kind of automatically put you in a different category. So the longer you are professionally disconnected, you can experience a diminished sense of self and you have to regain that as part of your relaunch in addition to reinvigorating your networks and reskilling your upskilling, plus all the things that you would normally do in a job mm -hmm. search. So that does distinguish the relaunch from a regular job search. And then that's one of the reasons that these return to work programs are so powerful is often they are cohort based and that's the best practice. They have a group of people who are starting at the same time, who are relaunching, who are making this life transition on the personal and professional side at the same time and going through this process together. And they usually have 12 or 16 weeks or sometimes longer of special programming and they have mentors. And this cohort experience is super powerful and the bonds that people make in these cohorts can last for years. And the other thing I'll say about it is in the last couple of years, our consulting practice when we're working with companies has gone global. So we work with relaunchers all, all over the world now. And for example, we worked at MasterCard had the very first global returnship cohort. So everyone in 13 countries started on the same day. Wow. and move through the program together. And so it was like a living laboratory. And we could see that relaunchers, no matter where they were in the world, had the same concerns, like the same things they were excited about, the same things they were concerned about. And then if you're taking a career break for family reasons, for childcare reasons, and you have a family at home, you're not the only one making the transition. They are too. And you're kind of worried about them also. So that's another dimension. And a very interesting feature of the return to work programs going virtual during COVID was that the relaunch that was made by people who were coming off of childcare career breaks was gentler than the one where you had to get up and leave the house and go into the office on the same day that you relaunched your career. Now you're around, you've gone back to work, you're in the program, you're relaunching your career, but you're home 
And then at some later point, you're going to start going into the office. So that gradual relaunch has been commented on again by relaunches around the world that it's been a gentler process for their families. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love when you mentioned the cohort effect. It's one of these super powerful things that you know, occasionally you hear people talk about it as you just did. I feel like it's almost a secret sauce for success in many, many endeavors. You know, as one different type of example, there's a group called Posse out of Tennessee, and they put together a group of high school kids, often from underprivileged backgrounds, that end up going to the same university and they form a cohort among them. So they have a natural kind of affinity group. And that's a really, really big deal for kids from underprivileged backgrounds because they may be smart enough to get into a great school or any school for that matter. But once they're there, it's a sink or swim. And if you have your posse, as they call it, or their team or the cohort, it's just so helpful. It's true for people going back to school in general. You know, in MBA programs, we call them a cohort. When you were at Harvard Business School, you had your class. And at Tuck, we have our second year section and you had that bonding. So I think that's a really powerful mechanism to increase the odds of success for people returning or relaunching. And I'm wondering if there are other types of things that they do or not so much that you're doing yourself because you're doing a lot, but what the relaunchers, the actual people can do or should do, like what your advice might be for them once they're there on the job with all the energy we talked about. And yes, you know, find you and the company that might be involved in doing this if they have a program, uh, creating a cohort. But are there other suggestions you'd have for people that are relaunching to ease that shift for them? So are you saying for people who don't go in in a structured return to work program or for people who are in the programs? Well, I think for people that are in a program, it's anything that goes beyond what the program is. But I have to believe there's a lot of people that are coming back and maybe you have the data. I don't, but I'm guessing it's not a tiny number either that are just, they figure it out on their own as best they could and they got a job and they might not have that cohort and it's up to them and what they can do to help. Yeah. Despite you know, the proliferation of programs that we're seeing, most people relaunch without a program. And there are things that they can do. That's one of the things we also do at iRelaunch is we provide a community for people who are in all stages of relaunching, including after they relaunch. So for example, we have almost 100,000 relaunchers in our community, and we have about 8,000 of them are in a private Facebook group called the iRelaunch Return to Work Forum. And they're in all stages of relaunching, including already relaunched. And it's been really interesting to watch the dynamic there because it's a very vibrant, very active group. And people are commenting and posing questions who are at the beginning of the process and who are already back in the job. And we're starting to see the relaunchers who have stayed in the group after they've relaunched almost mentor the people who are coming along, which happens in a more formal way in the employer return to work programs, but we're seeing it happen informally in this community. And amongst themselves, even though they've relaunched in different ways at different companies, the relaunchers who are already back at work do have some camaraderie with each other and do form a loose cohort, so to speak. One of the things that we do at iRelaunch is we have a weekly podcast. We have about 200 episodes we have released so far. And we do a lot of interviewing of people who have already relaunched their careers, looking retrospectively at the experience. And we always ask them at the end, what piece of advice do you have for the relaunchers in our audience? So that's another source where we're asking people to pay it forward in a sense, but they often communicate to us afterward that it was so meaningful for them to even have the interview and 
talk about their experience from that perspective. It was important to them as individuals in addition to what they were giving to the relauncher community. So sometimes I think you're going back to work and you're just like, head down, got to do my best work. I have to put all my energy into trying to do the best job I can. And the other pieces of it, you are kind of hoping will just come along, but you're actually not being that strategic about it once you're back in, except to do the best you can and produce the best Mm. work possible. So I'd say that's what people really focus on, whether or not they're in a program. And that's what they should be focusing on, you know, at the beginning. I was recently talking to one of my former students who is in her, let's just say mid to late 30s. She has three kids. She has had a a really high powered job. And she texted the other day to tell me that she resigned. And there are a lot of reasons for it. But one of them was three little kids, a husband that travels. And she was overwhelmed. And this is someone I happen to know. There's nothing she can't do. She's an absolute superstar. But she, too, with three kids under the age of five or six, you know, she might go back to work in a month. She might go back to work in five years. I don't know. But what advice would you have for her and other people like her that are making the transition or trying to figure out how to manage their careers right at the time when they realize they've got to change this thing? They may be super women, but there's a limit to what anyone can do. So ideally, if you can keep a toe in the water, it's a good thing. We did write about this way back when Back on the Career Track came out, that keeping a toe in positions you better than if you took a complete break. So one thing that she can think about is, is there a way that she can contract back to her company on an ad hoc basis as a way of not only staying connected with the people, but also from a work perspective? Maybe that's realistic. Maybe it's not. But I would throw that out there because some people just think it's an all or nothing situation and others are having some success getting rid of that sort of traditional formal relationship and moving into more of a contractor relationship. And that gives them the flexibility and the schedule control that they need. Assuming that that's not an option, I would say it's really important for her to stay in touch with a group of people. She can make a list of 10 people that it would be really good for her to stay in touch with. And I don't mean every week she has to send them email. It could be twice a year or when she saw some interesting article or something that she just wanted to get back in touch with them about that was something fun and not even work-related, but just to sort of keep that connection open. If she has any kind of licenses, you know, if people are lawyers and they're members of a bar or any kind of licenses, we tell people do their best to keep those renewed as opposed to let them go. And then they have to reapply. And it's a much bigger deal than if they had simply been like paying a membership fee and taking a few continuing education classes every year. And also, I would say, use this time to step back and reflect and think about her career path to date And think about, does she want to go back to what she was doing before? Does she want to do something totally different? And when I say this, I want to be realistic. When you take career breaks, you're not taking career break. So you can immediately start strategizing (laughs) what you're going to do when you're returning. You're taking career break for a reason. So do what you took the career break for. And then at some later point, you can think about, was I on the right career path? Is there something else I want to do? Try to think about new career goals for yourself. So I would use the time to do that. And then the other thing is, if she thinks she's going to stay in the field that she's in, to try to find ways to stay connected in terms of subject matter expertise. So for example, 
For the 11 years when I was on career break, I barely read the newspaper. Now I had young kids and like life was chaotic, but I remember I had to resubscribe to the Wall Street Journal and read it cover to cover for a good six months before I felt like I had a handle on what was going on in the business world again. And I missed the 90s, <laughs> you know, which was an incredible period of consolidation among the financial services world. So I was afraid I was going to go into an interview and start talking about some company that didn't exist anymore or had merged or had changed names. So even on that basis, but really more fundamentally understand, follow the experts, read their articles, think about the controversies, try to tune in to conferences. You can do them virtually now or virtual courses. Again, pacing yourself in a way that is still realistic for you, given why you've taken the career break. So those are all the things that I would think about, at least up front for her. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you for that. Not just for her, but lots of other people that I know are listening. I have two last questions, one looking forward, one looking back. Looking forward, what will I relaunch be like five years or 10 years from now? What will the world of work be like in your role in your organization, you personally, in terms of your own leadership of this? Given how thoughtful you are of the entire career process, that is your business, you have no doubt thought about it for yourself and for your business moving forward. What do you see? What are you planning towards? This is my life's work. I love this. And I'm proud and gratified by the progress that we've made so far. I think it's really made a difference. I'm envisioning a world where companies that have student internship programs are running mid-career return to work programs side by side. And that's just a natural thing that any company with a large student internship program would be doing. And that the normalization of career breaks would be at a point where people look at their career paths and look at it as just one viable option that they talk about and think about and is realistic because they have a formal pathway back at so many employers when they're ready to return. So I think it really centers around the normalization of the career break and the philosophy of employers and individual managers in terms of how they view and embrace the returning professional. I'm hearing that you're never going to retire. That's what I also heard. Yeah, I'm always thinking about trends and what I'm seeing and what it means and how things can change and improve as a result. And as long as I'm capable of doing that, it is what I most love to do. So yeah, I do anticipate I'm going to be in it for at least five or 10 more years, probably longer. Yeah, probably longer. The one thing that I've seen in organizations that are bootstrapped together and that have a big impact and some scale that you've done is the necessity of building a team to ensure longevity. And you know that. And this is not a one-woman operation. How many people do you have working in your organization? We have about 14 people on the team now. We have an A-plus team. We have great people. About 80% of the people on our team are relaunchers. So mm -hmm. we hire people who are returning from career break and they are incredible as we know that they are and we knew they would be. So we call ourselves a high productivity, high performing team. We've always worked remotely and I see us continuing to expand. We have managed our growth, I think, in a very strategic way. And so far, we have been able to meet the demand of our employers on the consulting side. We run conferences and events, and we produce a tremendous amount of content. So 
I'm not sure what that means going forward beyond expanding the team bigger and bigger. But that's how we've been running it right now. And it's been a super successful model. And of course, ensuring the next generation 30 years from now when you plan to step down. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we have a couple of people on our team who are, I'd say, in their late 20s, early 30s. And one of them calls herself a (laughs) (laughs) pre-launcher. Well, you know what I really like about that also is that these people that get immersed in these ideas are starting to think about their careers that way, that this is... You use the word normalize a few times, that this is normal, that this is okay, that this is not a negative thing to do. This is called life. And I would like young people to be thinking about that right from the beginning, men yeah. and women. Yeah, absolutely. And I should name it. It's Shannon Amsbacher who heads up all of our marketing, and she is the one who coined the term pre-launcher. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree with what you're saying, because part of what's going on here is role modeling. So when we have these relaunchers who return to work after long career breaks, they are incredibly inspiring and instructive for individuals who are looking to relaunch soon or way in the future. They're also role models for employers as to what is possible. So the more success stories that we have out there, then the better it is for everyone who is going to be relaunching their careers going forward on the employer side and also on the individual side. Okay, last question, looking back. I like to ask people about advice, and you've given various advice already, but advice of a different ilk here. If you could magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old in college, and you could lean over to 21-year-old Carol and say, if there's one thing you want to know, or there's one thing you want to be alert to, or there's something you should know about the world, or about work, or about life, what would it be? What would you have wanted to magically tell yourself, or have heard, or learned when you were 21 years old, really at the beginning of your own career, your own life? That's a tough one. I think I would have wanted to tell myself, go out and explore as much as possible career-wise throughout all my 20s. And one of the things I actually talk to younger people about today is to use your 20s to try a lot of different things. Because we hear from our relaunchers on the other side of their career break, the ones who are relaunching in a different direction will say, you know, I just fell into what I did at the first part of my career. I took a job in that area, and then the next thing you know, I had another job in that area, and then I had my career in that area. Or they said, I was fulfilling someone else's expectations. So it was like, my parents wanted me to go to law school. So I went to law school and never really wanted to do it. So now that I'm relaunching, I'm going to do what I really want to do. So in my mind, that lesson for my younger self, for younger people today, is explore as much as possible. Try not to be fulfilling someone else's expectations. And when you're in your 20s, you're really young and there's a lot of life ahead of you. And so not to worry that you have to get locked in to something that someone is defining as success by the time you're 30 years old. That is excellent advice and parallels some other types of advice I've heard from other guests in the SIDCast from completely different backgrounds that see young, smart people in an incredible hurry to just do everything and learn everything. And when you have a few years on you, you realize that's actually not the optimal way to live your life. But it's very hard to know that when you're 21. And this notion of fulfilling someone else's expectations is very powerful, very powerful. And I've caught myself personally as well on that and have avoided actually 
making what would have been a gigantic mistake in terms of my own career by not falling into that trap. But I had gone down a path because it just feels good. People tell you how great you are and you'd be great to do this. And it gets built up and who doesn't want to hear that? And then you just, you got to kind of know who you are. You got to center yourself. Carol Fishman Cohen, what a great conversation. Thank you so, so much for sharing your perspective, your business, your ideas, your philosophy with all of our listeners. Thanks, Sid. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to have it with you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>